Good afternoon. Thanks for jumping in. This is Greg Lois from the Lois Law Firm, and today we are talking about New York workers' compensation and when the accident arises out of in the course of employment or when it doesn't. So really what we're going to be talking about today is the defense that we raise to a case that might not arise out of in the course of employment. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about denials in general. I'm going to talk just briefly about how we have to make a compensability determination quickly in a New York workers' compensation case. Uh, and that's because we have some strict timelines we have to follow. Uh, next, I'm going to walk us through um, really the arising out of in the course of employment defenses that occur based on travel. And we're going to talk about on-premises versus off-premises injuries. And I've got to talk about work from home injuries. So we're going to talk about commuting injuries, commute time, paid commutes. We're going to talk about employer-provided travel, employer-reimbursed travel. I have to talk a little bit about parking lots and common area accidents, which Again, even if you're walking through a parking lot, that's a travel time case, so we've got to discuss that. And then I'm going to talk about working from home, and I'm going to talk about the new decision that came out in 2020 that dramatically changed the landscape in New York for work from home injuries. Um, that was a case where the board came out very favorably for the employer saying, nah, this accident didn't arise out of it in the course of employment. And the appellate division smacked them down in 2020 and said, no, board, you're wrong. You're analyzing this case incorrectly. So let me go through that as well. All right. Um, just a quick reminder, and I like to say it right at the top, this is a completely live webinar presentation. So I know the majority of people watch these recorded uh, or listen to the podcast version. But if you're with me here today, it's because uh, you want to have the opportunity to ask me a question as I proceed. So please feel free to do so. Ask me questions. It makes it so much more fun for me. I'll answer questions at the end. I will read your first name so you know I'm addressing your question, and then I will read the question out to the audience, uh, and that way we can all learn from each other's questions. There are no stupid questions. Believe me, if you've got a question about something or taking an issue with maybe something I said, someone else who's watching uh, definitely did, and your question will help us sort of illustrate that concept or topic better. So please ask questions. Uh, brief commercial. Uh, this weekend, Saturday, Lois Law Firm is sponsoring a dog show to benefit the Seeing Eye Charity. This is an amazing charity that's been around since 1929, has supplied thousands of Seeing Eye dogs uh, to people with vision disabilities. Uh, this is a, just a wonderful charity that we're supporting. We were joined by so many members of the community, so many businesses came forward and wanted to join in to this uh, charitable event. We are hosting it on June 25th. Uh, we got some wonderful support from the county as well. We've got a portion of a county uh, park, including a dog park. We're doing all sorts of uh, fun activities. Br come, bring your dog. Um, we're going to have lots of giveaways for the dogs that are coming from various pet stores and suppliers. Uh, we are asking for donations, and Lois Law Firm is matching all donations made. Uh, so this is June 25th. It's coming up this weekend. Uh, if you're in the northern New Jersey or metropolitan New York area, it's easy to get to Van Sawn Park, uh, which is a large county park that we're holding this event in. We're expecting hundreds and hundreds of people. There's food that's going to be catered. Uh, there's uh, lots of other businesses involved in this and, of course, the dog show. So there are going to be plenty of awards and prizes for things like waggiest tail or best kiss, best dog costume, etc. 
go to our website, Lois Law Firm, uh, LoisLLC.com. You'll see right on the main page, you scroll down, information about the dog show. You don't have to come. Uh, you don't have to bring a dog to come, okay? So even if you're a cat person, you're welcome. Uh, and of course, all donations are being matched by Lois Law Firm. And it's just a great charity uh, that does benefit people with disabilities. So uh, all money is going to the charity. All right, so that's a little bit of a question. Uh, sorry, commercial break. So let's just dive right back into our topic. Now, I did say at the beginning that we had to touch briefly on denials. Um, you know, my personal opinion on, on denials, and again, we're about as aggressive advocates as you can get, is it's better to deny a case when there's a question about compensability than it is to accept it without prejudice or maybe slow down or maybe not do anything at all, right? And the reason for that is in New York, when there is a workplace loss and we do nothing, the injury and the accident are gonna be presumed compensable and you will be responsible and liable for payments and benefits. Uh, if you dispute the, or the case, you have some strict timelines. We have both a payer compliance rule, which is a 10 or 18 day timeline to begin payments, as well as a 25A rule about how we have to file our denial within 25 days of the notice of indexing. So we really have to make a quick decision in New York workers' compensation case. Um, again, generally speaking, uh, my advice would be it's easier to deny and then accept a case later, that's always acceptable, versus accepting a case and then determining later after investigation, wait a second, this maybe shouldn't have been compensable. So before we dive into today's substantive topic, my advice to most clients is, hey, just give us a call and we'll tell you very quickly and, and easily, and again, without a charge, whether or not we think the case is defensible or not, or if there is a substantive or uh, a jurisdictional defense that should be raised. All right, let's jump into more uh, clearly the today's topic, which is looking at when accidents are uh, disputed because they arise out of in the course of employment, and I'm going to particularly be talking about on-premises versus off-premises losses. So a bright line rule we have in New York is that an employee on a regular commute, any injuries that occur during their regular commute is not compensable. Those are just the general risks and hazards of commuting, just traveling in, uh, in this country, uh, absolutely not related or specific to any one employment. And for that reason, those injuries are not compensable. Of course, this gets more complicated because things like paid commutes or employer providing transportation can transform that regular uh, non-compensable, not arising out of the course of employment injury into a compensable event. So one of the first questions you always want to ask when a commute time accident is brought to your attention would be, uh, did we pay this person? Are they getting a per diem? Are they getting mileage reimbursement? Or are we providing the transportation? Are we getting them to work? Um, I'll also tell you that just simply uh, the employer offering a commuter benefit to their employees, like we do at Lois Law Firm when we offer a pre-tax contribution towards their commuting costs, that is not uh, transform the commute into a compensable event. All right. Uh, we also get in New York, this is an entertaining one because New York operates a subway system and obviously our, our bus systems and rail systems involved. What happens where the employer owns the transportation system? So imagine uh, someone who maybe works for the uh, subway authority, uh, the, the transit authority, uh, who gets injured on a transit authority uh, conveyance on their way to their transit authority employment. So the case law on that has come out that essentially, even though the employer might own the transportation, the person is acting in their regular commute and there's really no special hazard that the employer is exposing them to just because they're in their 
uh, employer-owned but not provided, meaning paid for, transportation. Here's your first friendly reminder. This is a live presentation. If you type your questions in, I will get to as many as I can at the end. All right, what about lunch and breaks, right? Lunch and breaks. Uh, accidents that occur on lunch and breaks may or may not be compensable depending on the uh, any benefit being derived from that uh, benefit that lunch or break or where the accident takes place, right? So, so many of our clients are in a retail environment and they've got maybe a location in a shared mall or a strip mall or something like that and their employees leave their premises, go down uh, to the food court and have their lunch and you know maybe have a slip and fall. Is that compensable? These are the types of common questions we see. So the same general rule is going to apply as a commuting time injury. Generally not compensable. If an injury occurs to an employee while on a lunch or any other type of break, generally it's not going to be compensable. Even if it's the while the uh, employee is coming back from or going to that break that they're going to take. Uh, so we would treat that just like a regular uh, commuting injury, which again would generally speaking not be compensable. There is a difference though between how we're going to treat inside and outside employees. Generally speaking, employees who are uh, on our premises at all times and are having their lunch on premises, even though they're on their lunch break, the fact that that break is taking place on premise that lunchtime injury is probably going to be compensable. And the same holds true for the off-premise employee. The off-premise employee who's now uh, you know, at the work site, working the job, takes a break, leaves that job site to go down the block to the diner and have lunch, generally speaking, that's not going to be compensable. Of course, this is New York, so there's going to be an exception to that general rule too, which is that if the employer is getting some kind of benefit, and even if the benefit's just health and happiness and morale of taking employees out to lunch or sharing a meal with employees, that's gonna be enough to make the lunchtime injury compensable. So you really need to look at the work connectedness of that lunchtime injury. For example, a lunchtime injury where an, a, an attorney is taking a client out to lunch, it's probably gonna be compensable because the employer is deriving some type of benefit from that. So just keep your eyes open about what the type of uh, employment it is, on-premises or off-premises. Think about where the accident takes place, again, on-premises or off-premises. And even if it's off-premise, and even if it's a lunch break, it's unpaid, but the employer is deriving some benefit from that lunch. For example, health and morale, or just general team building, that's enough, that would then be a compensable event. Now, New York also has this other unique idea or feature called the gray area rule. And when you think about our New York City uh, or metropolitan employments, you know, we're talking about dense urban environment. And so many accidents take place right outside the employer's workplace. You know, it, it freezes in the winter here. There's ice, there's snow, there's all sorts of uh, hazards on the, ha on the sidewalk just directly adjacent to our location or even close to it. So New York's developed this gray area test, which is really just sort of a legal test that we look at to determine whether or not an off-premises injury, which again, normally would not be compensable, could be compensable because of the special circumstances of the type of urban employment we have in New York. So again, the general rule is your regular commute, whether you're walking down sidewalks or taking a subway or taking a taxi or driving a car, not compensable. Except for, of course, there are, is a decision from 1976 which says, wait a second, 
once that employee starts really getting close to and, and sharing a, and, and, and to the employment and then is exposed to a special hazard that the public doesn't have uh, uh, sort of exposed to, which again is close, uh, closely associated with the employment, well, yeah, that could be compensable. And a great example of this would be uh, some sort of um, subway grates uh, or uneven sidewalk right outside the employer's door that every employee has to go through to get into that employment. Yeah, the employer doesn't own that, it's not part of their premises, but that sidewalk is so adjacent and it's so dangerous and all of the employees have to go through it uh, to, to get to the employment. That's gonna merge with the risks of employment and would fall under this gray area test of probably being compensable part of that commute. So. Whereas the, the further you get from the employment, the less likely any special hazards would be found to be uh, arising to a compensable loss. So if, to simplify this, I'm gonna tell you that essentially the closer the person is approaching the place of employment, the more likely the accident's gonna be compensable. And again, we're talking specifically about the urban environment. And the general rule uh, is that even if the accident occurs on a sidewalk or in a public roadway or public street in New York, if they're real close to the employment, and again, I'm talking about urban employment specifically, that gray area rule is gonna say, well, if there's a good chance that this could be compensable. So really take a look at it uh, and, and be thoughtful about those types of acceptances or denials. Now, there is a lot of case law on this gray area test, again, going back to the 1970s, but there recently was a new one that uh, just came out, which was an interesting one, so I wanna share it with you. The case is called Johnson versus the New York City Transit Authority. The case was decided in 2020. Uh, now, in this case, the appellate division came out and said, look, hey guys, we all understand that an injury that occurs in the public walkway could be compensable. And this gentleman had a slip and fall on a public walkway right outside of his place of employment. But the appellate division said, but in this case, it's not compensable. And the reason it's not compensable is this guy showed up to work about an hour early and says that he got injured slipping and falling on the sidewalk right outside of his employment. And the appellate division kind of went out of its way to say, you know, normally this would be compensable except for nobody required him to be there, nobody directed him to be there to show up to work an hour early. Uh, and so for that reason, we're not gonna find this to be compensable. So it's interesting that if he was actually coming right into work to clock in and start his day, they would have found it compensable. But the fact that it was distant in time from the time he was expected to be there, the appellate division said, nope, this sidewalk fall, you were probably just walking by to go to the local bagel shop or grab a donut and then come to work, so nah, I don't think this one's compensable. So there really has to be a chronicity aspect to that gray area rule too, that, sidewalk rule, we really got to be looking at like, okay, how close in time is this? You know, is it reasonable for the person to be in that exact place? Um, so again, this was determined not to be compensable. All right, what about employees who go to many locations during the day and who are on a sales route, right? Uh, I'm thinking about maybe an outside merchandise or outside salesperson who starts in their home every day and goes to multiple uh, spots. So Again, uh, a great example of this would be a merchandiser, outside salesperson, some kind of marketer, where the employee has specific days and specific locations. So on the Monday, they always start at so-and-so's office, and on Tuesday, they always go first to the second place. Generally, we're gonna argue that that's a regular commute. You know, Even though they're going to a different place each day, there is a uh, regular commute sort of aspect to this. There is enough of a pattern 
and we'll be able to make that argument. So just be thoughtful of them. You know, generally speaking, a special mission would, or, or an outside salesperson would be portal to portal coverage from their home to wherever they're going for their sales job. The exception is going to be if they're going to the same place each day. And then really we're saying, hey, judge, how is this any different than anybody else with a regular commute? Parking lots, lots of accidents in parking lots. Again, it freezes here in New York in the winter. We got lots of slip and falls on ice and parking lots. So the question you're going to want to ask when you're considering whether or not that parking lot injury is going to be compensable is who owned the parking lot, who maintained the parking lot, and was the employee required to park in that specific place in the parking lot. That last one is going to be important because, again, this is off-premises, right? We're making the presumption, here's a parking lot, my employer doesn't own it, my employer doesn't retain it, but my employer tells me I need you to park in a very specific place in the parking lot. Uh, and, and, and that's a, a requirement that you have to do. And for that reason, we can now transform that into a part of their of the, the premises. So a great example is, uh, we see this in the retail environment, the retail um, employer says, uh, hello employees, you all must park in the furthest away parking spot from this location. We want our customers to have these nice parking spots up front, right? That's going to transform that entire walk from that parking lot, which again, we don't own or maintain, into a compensable trip. So be thoughtful about that. Ask that question. Next, most travel that employers are sent on are, is going to transform into portal-to-portal -portal coverage. Um, so this would be any uh, me sending an attorney to a conference, we're sending someone uh, for a remote location for a sale, that type of thing. So we're thinking about things like events, client meetings, customer visits, um, you know, remote meetings, anything that we're sending people to. Generally speaking, that type of unusual travel is going to be portal to portal coverage. Be thoughtful about that. Now, just had a recent case on this that I want to talk about. It's called Wright versus Nelson Tree Services, again decided in 2020. In this instance, the employee was required uh, to travel about the country and go from his hotel to go to specific work locations, pick up trucks, and then drive them to other locations. Okay, that was part of his job. And he had an accident traveling from his hotel to the place where he would pick up the truck and then begin that delivery operation. The employer says this is not compensable. That's his regular commute. He basically lives in hotels, and he's not really working for us. We're not paying him uh, an hourly wage until he gets uh, into that first vehicle that he's going to pick up and deliver. Appell divisions came back and said, mm -mm, that doesn't work, guys. Uh, you're directing him to specific locations at specific times. He's, you have him living in a hotel so that he's accessible to your, uh, you know, your, your remote equipment. And for all that reason, you have a remote employee who has now got covered portal to portal. So that's a recent decision on that. Another whole class of accidents that could or could not be compensable is personal or special errands. And you know, think about this where you send uh, your assistant or the junior person on your staff, you say, hey, go down to Starbucks and pick us up all coffees and bring them back here. You know, If it's the boss telling them to do that, requiring them to do that, well, guess what? We just turned that into a compensable event. That was a required travel your employer directed it. Where the employee is just kind of doing it on their own, there really is no bright line test that I can point you to. Sometimes the board will find it compensable, sometimes not. It's really going to go to uh, whether or not the employer facilitates, encourages, or permits the employee to regularly leave the work premises 
go somewhere else and do something personal, go on a little errand for themselves. So just be thoughtful about the permissiveness that the employer is, how, is holding. Now, most cases we're going to dispute these, and we have been pretty successful in denying the compensability of personal special errands. And the more remote the special errand is from the workplace and the job, uh, the more likely you are to prevail. So I'll give you an example. Going across the street, literally across the street to Dunkin' Donuts and grabbing a cup of coffee and coming back um, and getting struck by a car and maybe on the way back, probably going to be compensable. Or the judge is going to say, well, you permitted it, you allowed them to, you know they were doing it, you acknowledged it. By the way, it's very close. And by the way, it's a normal short thing to be doing, right? The more distant that travel is and the less permissive the employer is about it, the more likely you will prevail uh, if you want to challenge the compensability of that type of claim. All right, the last big class of cases I want to talk about is our wonderful working from home injury cases. Uh, so in general, injuries that occur at home are becoming increasingly common and, and obviously as more and more people are working from home, uh, we're going to see these accidents uh, becoming more and more prevalent and frequent in our system. I want to make a distinction between working from home and taking work home with you, okay? Working from home, I think we need to be very specific about this and say this person is actually allowed, permitted, or required to work from home. Simply putting work in your bag and saying, I'm going to work on it sometime when I get home, maybe, that's not enough to transform anything into a workplace accident. I mean, there's case law on that that's pretty specific where, you know, employees who put work uh, materials in the trunk of their car because they were going to maybe review stuff at home that night, get in a car accident on the way home. I'm sorry, that commute home, that was your regular commute, and it actually didn't um, provide any benefit to your employer. So, you know, that's unless it's required or permitted, uh, it's probably not going to be compensable. Now, uh, generally speaking, the work premises at home is going to be treated just the same as your work premises in the office. So if the person falls out of their chair, has an unwitnessed loss at home, it's going to be compensable just like it would in a regular office environment. There's a recent case that just was decided in 2020 by the appellate division, which really brought this um, you know, issue to the fore. In this case, uh, the employee of Matrix Absence Management, Caprero, uh, asked his employer if he could get some new home furniture, because uh, new home office furniture, to facilitate his work. Uh, and he was a work-from-home worker. He was working remotely that was permitted and required by the employer. The employer says, nope, we don't pay for personal furniture. You know, all you need is a desk and a laptop. Just do your job. Uh, one day during the workday, punches out for lunch, out for lunch. This is a lunch break injury. Uh, and then uh, had ordered his own office furniture and was carrying it up the stairs in his house uh, on, again, on his lunch break while working from home and sustained an injury. Well, the Workers' Compensation Board in New York actually said, uh, okay, that's not compensable. That's, first of all, it occurred on a lunch break, and two, it's a work-from-home injury, and, and you know, you're, not, you're not doing anything that benefits the employer, so not compensable. The appellate division came back and said, nope, this is compensable. Uh, the activity was reasonable and sufficiently work-related for this to be held a compensable event. And that's their terms, reasonable and sufficiently work-related. That's pretty scary because under this standard, and this has been the standard in place for the last two years, really just about anything that happens in someone's home 
uh, no matter really how remote or really how removed from the work experience and work requirements is going to be found to be compensable. So that's a very broad standard and brings in a lot of things into that standard and so a little bit scary for us as employers. All right, um, that's what I got for prepared remarks and I think I've covered the things I really wanted to cover which is what happens, what's the difference between on-premises and off-premises injuries, how do we treat them, and what are the factors that we're looking at when we're determining whether or not an accident which occurs again on-premises or off-premises could or could not be compensable. Let's jump into some live questions and answers and I hope you guys have typed some questions in for me. I hope this topic um, maybe uh, was exciting enough that people had some thoughts and they wanted to share. All right, I'm going to go in the order in which questions were presented. Uh, Mia says, Greg, are there slides being shown? I can only see the cover screen. No, our slides were being shown. Yeah, okay, I'm being, I'm being told. Yep, okay. Uh, so it might be something with your computer, Mia. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Mary says, Greg, I have multiple claimants who are working second and third jobs. Uh, one typically for an insured employer and the second being some uh, uh, looks like gig economy. So where she's talking about DoorDash or Grubhub or something similar. I've asked the judge to force the employee to provide their income tax records to see if any apportionment recovery would be appropriate. But each of the judges have refused to direct claimant to release their income tax records. Should subpoenas be issued in a case like that, or how should we handle for the future? Thank you. Okay, Mary, great question. How do I verify the income for a claimant who I suspect is doing other things? Okay, first, I personally don't like tax returns as a way of verifying employment. I can tell you that there is two much better methods of verifying employments. The first one uh, is to subpoena those companies directly that you think they might be working for. So you've listed in your question to me a number of gig economy employers. The best way to get the, the evidence of to whether this person is doing jobs with them or not would be to subpoena them and just say, hello, do you have any uh, records for this person having provided services to you? Okay. So that, that would be my number one thing. Uh, the second thing I would do is uh, the uh, or put them under oath. Right? Bring them into court and require them to testify and say, we're going to ask you, have you ever worked for gig economy number one, number two, number three? And then a really broad question, have you worked in any gig economy role? Have you done anything, uh, you know, any of these app jobs? Have you done any of those? And see what the claimant says. Um, personally, I don't like tax records because anybody can say anything they want on a tax return form. Right? I mean, true story. Uh, you have up to three years after you file your taxes to amend or change them. Now, generally speaking, people are fiddling with their taxes and trying to show less income on them, but actually in the workers' compensation context, we've seen the opposite. We've seen uh, situations where people are trying to rely on tax forms to demonstrate what their pre-accident wages were and trying to beef it up. But again, that's not a really great way of verifying income because tax returns, again, can be amended or changed. The other idea I would share with you and, and it's not going to work in these gig economy positions that you've uh, specifically asked me about, uh, but it would work in almost any other employment. Uh, go to Social Security and, uh, sorry, demand the claimant execute a release so that you can get a Social Security earnings search done. And this will reveal to you any employer that they've worked for who paid Social Security taxes, which by the way should be every employer they've ever worked for, 
and you'll get a nice listing and a nice record from Social Security, so you'll be able to really investigate those claims. So I hope, Mary, that that was some, some things that were helpful for you. Okay, Bonnie asked the question, Greg, an employee with a pre-existing cardiac issue, which was newly and actively communicated to a coworker a week prior to the incident, has a stroke, falls to the floor, no injury on the way down. Employee goes to HR, family denies surgery, an employee dies from heart-related complications. Wow. Hospital bills, health insurance due to cardiac condition, but a strange spouse is now filing for death benefits for their young child. Is this compensable? Well, Bonnie, you've got just about everything in there, so congratulations. Uh, that sounds like almost like the kind of question I would ask a new attorney who's starting here or maybe somebody who's on an interview. I'd say, here's one of everything, right? So you've got so many issues in here. First, You've got maybe a pre-existing condition, but we know in workers' compensation cases, pre-existing conditions, if we exacerbate or aggravate the condition, could be compensable under workers' compensation, right? So uh, under the workers' compensation system as currently constituted, the fact that this person had a prior cardiac condition and came to work for the employer, that's not going to um, rule out automatically that any cardiac injury would not be compensable, again, if we accelerated or aggravated that underlying condition. The real question that we have here is, what was the work that this person was doing at the time of loss? Was it significant, extraordinary, and peculiar enough to lead to that kind of cardiac response? If you're telling this person is just sitting at a desk and just keels over, I think you're saying to yourself, all right, I've got a good defense on compensability. Because remember, uh, in cardiac causation cases, the claimant has to demonstrate uh, work activity which exceeds the normal exertions of their daily life. So as I scroll through your question again, I don't see that they were doing anything very specific, uh, that there was anything that led to that condition. So I would de be dis uh, defending this, not on the pre-existing side of it, things, but looking at the cur current causal connection of the cardiac condition uh, to the employment current causal connection, cardiac condition, yep, of the employment uh, to see if that had any, um, you know, impact or uh, you contributed to that loss. The last thing you've told me is a strange spouse, but I guess still legally married, but maybe not living together, so not an actual dependent, but still a spouse on paper with a dependent child. So the estranged spouse thing in New York is they're still married on paper, uh, proofs of actual dependency are really not going to be considered by the judge of compensation. The judge is going to say, marriage certificate, dependent child, they're going to be entitled to death or dependency benefits if this is a causally related death. So again, I won't be focusing strongly on the causally related death aspect of this case. So I hope that was useful. All right, Chris asked this question. Greg, in the work at home standard, if the employee drops some ice cubes on the kitchen floor, they melt, and then they go for an afternoon coffee in the kitchen and slip on the water spot. Would that be compensable, even though their failure to clean their kitchen floor caused them to fall? Could you subrogate if the spouse or roommate was the one that created the hazard in the home? All right, first question is amazing. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's crazy that we're now going to be responsible for whatever silly conditions this person has in their own home. I've had some crazy uh, work-from-home cases in the last couple of years. I had one where a lady said that, um, she was crawling under her desk to pick something up and then stood up too fast and whacked her own head on her own desk. And you just look at that and you go, well, how could I have, what could I have done as an employer to reduce that exposure? And the answer is nothing, right? Uh, so the employee setting up their own workplace or not being cleanly 
or you know there's not there's obviously they don't have an industrial hygienist working in that home making sure that spills are mitigated quickly these are really big challenges and unfortunately particularly with the Caprera decision as long as it's sufficiently work related like they're trying to do, get they're doing their normal job uh, yeah, it's going to be compensable um, there is a lot of case law that says little you know health breaks you need to go to the bathroom you need to go get a cup of coffee get a glass of water is not a deviation from the employment so the fact that they get injured while doing those things again is not going to be enough to really separate that from compensability now the second question you have is can I subrogate against someone who actually created the house or the answer is yes good luck with that um, you're going to be uh, attempting subrogation with a uh, a potential plaintiff that you're going to be standing in the shoes of who really does not want to cooperate with you so uh, that's a big good luck uh, for that one all right, I'm scrolling down. Uh, I see a, uh, a question that's unrelated. Uh, and then I see someone saying, yes, I can see things. Okay, good. All right, so uh, those are the questions we had today. If you had a question and you didn't get a chance to type it in, um, please feel free to email me and um, I'll be happy to answer your questions or just give me a call. Uh, we are meeting again today at 3 o'clock. And the last thing I just want to say is we are going to have so much fun next week. Uh, they're, sorry, this week, Saturday, at the dog show. So I hope you can join us if you're out there watching and in the New York metropolitan area. All right, everybody, thanks for your attention. Have a great day. See you next time.